Our scripture this morning finds Jesus teaching in the temple courts. The chief priests and elders of the people come and question him, and then he turns the table and questions them. We start with verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collector and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the wine, the vineyard to other uh, tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. Jesus said unto them, Have ye not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doings. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces. And when it falls on another, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treating them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today with a important passage and a critical subject, uh, that of hypocrisy. And we pray that you would, as we have already sung, unlock the deaf ears, that you would open blind eyes, and that that would happen today um, individually and personally for all of us that are here. I pray that whether this sermon is heard in this building or on our website, that you would just penetrate the hearts of people who are religious, they call themselves Christians, but there are seeds, wicked seeds of hypocrisy that we all need to deal with. And I pray that you would deal very specifically with us and help us to see ourselves in this text. This is your word for your church today, and I pray that we would receive it as such. So meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If the book of Matthew were a movie, and you could set a soundtrack to where we are in this book, you would hear the kind of music that creates tension. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of music that you know something's going to happen, like around the corner. You'd see Jesus go into Jerusalem, and the sound would be, ting, 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 ting. And you're like, look out, because something something big's going to happen. There is this sense of of anticipation and tension that's, that's growing in the soundtrack of the book of Matthew. And in point of fact, something big is happening. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and we're only a week away in the text from his crucifixion. We've got about six chapters left, and we'll be wrapping up our study in the months of February and March of next year. But right now, what we find is the tension between Jesus and the religious rulers is growing as they begin to go head-to-head in a whole new way. As we've seen, his message is upside down, his logic is upside down, his his teaching is um, kind of in your face, and particularly when it comes to those who are religious, Jesus makes religious people very uncomfortable. He particularly makes hypocritical people uncomfortable. In fact, he makes hypocritical people a bit angry. And part of the reason is that underlying the issue of hypocrisy is the fact that a person uses religious activity, they use religious experience as a way to define themselves and to prop themselves up. And and therefore, when Jesus comes in and he challenges this, when he begins to push against their sense of religious spirituality and superiority, the Pharisees push back. They can't give up their identity that's so wrapped in their religion. It's who they are. They're better than everybody else. And Jesus comes in and challenges them. 
And what you'll find is that hypocrisy, when it is, when religion is your identity, when spiritual superiority is sort of your lot in life from your vantage point, that when that is challenged, it will cause you to do and say crazy things like crucify him. That's the power. That's the crazy power of religious hypocrisy. And if we are all honest, this is not a scribe and Pharisee issue, this is not a New Testament issue, this is a human issue. There are seeds within all of our hearts, remaining little seeds of hypocrisy. Little things that we say that we really don't live, little ways that we give inferences or pretend that we're here when we're really not. We talk um, an inch ahead of where we really live. Jesus is the only true antidote to people becoming this hypocritical person they really don't want to be. After all, no one wants to be a hypocrite. No one would say, well, when I grow up, I want to be a fake. That's what I want to be. When I grow up, I want to be a hypocrite. That's what I want to be. No, Nobody has this desire to land there, and yet it happens so often. So we need to figure out what Jesus says here and what he says to all of us. We begin with this sense that Jesus' authority is challenged in verse 23. This begins this exchange of Jesus and the um, chief priests and the religious rulers. According to verse 23, we find that Jesus was teaching in the temple area. Around the outside of the temple was kind of a colonnade area called Solomon's Porch. And this is often where... People would gather, and this is where the early church even gathered in Acts chapter 3, and this is where instruction would often take place. And as Jesus was teaching here, the chief priests and the elders challenged him on his authority to teach the people. In classic hypocritical form, they want to know, are you a party boy? Are you, what's your union card? Which camp are you in? Who do you ascribe in terms of your beliefs and your authority? And they ask in verse 23, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? They wanted to know, look, where are you on the scale in our culture? So Jesus then wisely challenges them, not by answering them at all, but rather by giving them a question. Verse 24, he says, I will also ask you one question, and if you give me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's going to turn the tables on them and ask them a question. He says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? So this wasn't a trick question. Jesus genuinely just wanted them to answer the question. Is it from heaven or is it from man? But it was designed to do something. This question was designed to expose their hypocrisy. Well, they, the scribes and the elders, they, they, they form a quick huddle in verse 25, and it goes like this. They, they say, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, uh, we are afraid of the crowd. And You see, for they all held that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. It's classic, classic hypocrisy. Well, if we say this, we'll we'll, we'll alienate this group. And if we say this, we'll alienate this group. And you just want to step in the middle and go, come on, man up. Who do you believe? Or do you believe anything? You see, they said to Jesus, we don't know. So you need to see here what Jesus does. He asks them a question, and in this question, it then exposes the 
roots of hypocrisy, which are unbelief and the fear of man. You realize that hypocrisy, underneath it, are these issues of unbelief and the fear of man. Unbelief in that hypocrisy is a failure to place your complete trust, your complete faith, and your complete hope in God for your righteousness. It instead creates this self-made, performance-oriented religion that is both hopeless and impossible, and unbelief is at the root. Hypocrisy is believing in yourself, wanting to be somebody who you're not, and thinking you can just perform and do it, and it's impossible and hopeless. Impossible because the target is always moving. You can always find people who seem to be more spiritual than you, and you can always find people who are a lot less spiritual than you. And it's hopeless because of the fact that while you pile on people to make yourself feel better the reality is deep within your heart you know that something is wrong with doing this it's also stuck with the fear of man because this comparison to others and what other people think of you is the fear of man that's what holds hypocrisy in the balance and holds it tight and it's rare for a hypocrite to finally acknowledge you know what i've been hypocritical why because the fear of man is the very thing that inflames their hypocrisy I can't let people know who I really am. Are you kidding me? I'm better than everybody else. No one ever intends to be a hypocrite, but unbelief and the fear of man slowly take over. That's what happens. And that's why Jesus simply refuses to answer. In verse 27, he simply says that I'm not going to answer you. And Jesus knows what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And that is, and I hope you know, that there are some things that you just shouldn't get involved in in terms of worthless discussions. There are some things that it's okay to say, you know what, I'm just not going to talk about this. I'm not, I'm not going to get into this uh, with you, and particularly people who are blinded by unbelief and the fear of man. And so Jesus decides he's not going to answer their question. However, that doesn't mean that he's totally silent. He's not giving them the silent treatment. No, he's just not going to get into this other authority thing because he knows that's not what the real problem is. Instead, what he does is he gives them three parables. Now, it's been a little while since we've looked at parables. Just by way of a reminder, a parable was a common way for Jesus to teach, particularly if he was dealing with a resistant crowd. Because the, the unique thing about a parable is that it draws you into the story, and you get um, enamored, if you will, with the details, the storyline, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes the Jesus sucker punch. Pow! And he just, he just clocks the people that, that are listening when they fi- finally realize that, oh my word, there's a point here, and the point is often shocking, uncomfortable, and in your face. And that's what happens with three parables right in a row. Now, all three of these parables have the same basic theme, and it's this, that God has rejected the hypocritical religious rulers. Don't miss that. All three parables are about the fact that God is rejecting these religious people. These people who think that they're so righteous. These people who think that they're so religious. That have all of the trappings of the external religiosity of the day. And Jesus is telling them, no, no, no. You have totally missed it. And God has rejected you. And you have no idea how far you are from the very heart of God. And Jesus now uses these three parables to drive this home. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. In verse 28, we find the first son, when he's asked by his father to go work in the vineyard, says to his dad, no, I won't go. And then he changes his mind and he goes. So his dad says, son, will you go in the vineyard? He goes, nah, I don't think so. And then he says, ah, you know what, okay, I'll go. Another son, the second son, 
When his dad says, hey, will you go work in the vineyard? Says, sure, I'll go. And then he doesn't. So you have two brothers, one dad, same request. Go work in my vineyard. The first one says, no, I don't think so. And then changes his mind. The second son says, yeah, I'll go. And then doesn't. And then Jesus asks a fairly straightforward question. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, of course, the correct answer is the first son who did the will of his father, even though he initially refused. And this is the answer that the religious crowd then gives Jesus. He asks them, who did the will of the father? Clearly, it's the first son. But it's the second son in particularly that Jesus is focused on because he wants them to see that it's the one who paid lip service to the father, the one who said, yeah, I'll go, and then didn't, who actually wasn't obedient at all. And so Jesus, now that he's got them right where he wants them, now he lowers the boom. Look at verse 31. He says, truly I say to you, here comes the sucker punch. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Whoa! Okay, so if you're hanging around at this moment, you're like, dude, go get Micah, there's gonna be a fight. Okay, this is, this is like serious. This is, this is tough stuff. Tax collectors and prostitutes? They're like, come on, you gotta see this. Jesus and the scribes are gonna duke it out right now. Go get them, cause this is gonna be incredible. It's the fight of the century. He's, Jesus is in their face. These are the people who the scribes and Pharisees thanked God that they weren't like. And Jesus says to them, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So they can't even say, oh, we didn't know. Jesus is like, yes, you knew, but you just chose not to believe. Ouch! This, these are tough words. Remember the tension? This is why the, 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 the soundtrack of this storyline is getting really tense. Jesus tells the religious crowd that they are guilty of failing to believe and repent and that the worst sinners of their day, the very people who they looked down their nose at, were in better shape than they were. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that real religion is doing the will of the Father, not saying you're going to do the will of the Father. That real religion is not just saying, yeah, I'll go into the vineyard, and then you don't. Real religion is going into the vineyard of the Father, even if at first you said, no, I don't want to go. In other words, a terrible sinner who for 20, 30 years said, I don't want to go into your vineyard. I don't want to go into your vineyard. I don't want to go into your vineyard. And did every other vineyard on the planet except the Lord's. And then wakes up and says, I'm done with my life running this way. Christ, I'm coming to you. That person is in a fabulous position, even though they got a laundry list of their past. Here's the good news. The good news is that if you've come to College Park Church today and you got a past that is so colorful and full of everything you can possibly imagine, the only thing you need to know today is who Jesus is and where you're headed and how it relates to repentance and faith in Him. And that means that you have a beautiful hope today in Christ. The church is made up of messed up, broken people with terrible pasts. We're all dysfunctional. We're all messed up. And I'm telling you, church shouldn't be a place where everyone pretends as if we're okay because we all know that we're not. 
right? The problem is, is we have to remind ourselves that because we don't like to acknowledge that. We want to come to church and do all the things and take our notes and agree with the sermon and, 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 and say yes, 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 walk out and think that lip service is where it's at. And the reality is the most dangerous place in the world to be is in a church on Sunday morning without a full understanding of how badly you need a Savior to continually cleanse your soul and heart. The person who scares me is not the person who comes broken into church. It's the person who comes and thinks they're fixed. That's a scary position to be in. Frederick Bruner in his commentary on this says, the parable of the two sons warns all spiritually serious persons to beware lest our energies be spent almost entirely in theological correctness and we make life obedience secondary. The problem, friends, is that the religious crowd was so convinced that they were right that they wouldn't listen. And listen, we do the same things. We have all these categories of sins. These are the bad ones. These are the dirty dozen, the Baptist seven, the Episcopalian nine. And we don't do these things. And we have these lists of all the things that we do. And the reality is we have these ways of self-justifying ourselves. And the fact of the matter is if God peeled open our hearts, all of us would go, oh my word, death lives in there. And our only hope is not a clean up in terms of our own behavior. Our only hope is Christ, I made a mess of my life. Would you come and take over? That's why today the only hope for you, friend, is this. You've made a mess of your life. You're a terrible, awful sinner. And your only hope is not you. Your only hope is coming to faith and relationship with Jesus. He can change your life. And church is made up of people who are completely messed up. And if it wasn't for Jesus, there'd be no hope. That's why our mission as a church is igniting a passion to make religious people. (laughs) No, our mission is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. That's what it's all about. He's the focal point. Some of you tripped out. What? That's our mission? Oh no, I'm out of here. So yeah, I would too, because that's not, that's not what I want. I know it's not what you want, and I'm certain that's not what God wants. Here's the second parable. Vineyard. So there's a, a landowner, and he builds a vineyard. It's got a fence, it's got a wine press, it's got a tower, and then he leases it to some tenants before he leaves the country. At the time of the harvest, he sends his servants to collect, must be part of the produce, we assume, part of the lease agreement. It was his vineyard, his fence, his tower, his wine press. It's his fields. It's his vineyard. But somehow, over time, the tenants, because they're living on it, and they're acting as though they're landowners, but they're really not, begin to kind of think in this hubris of heart, look, we're we're kind of big stuff. We're like tenants, you know. We, we, We lease this thing. This is ours. And then the Landowner sends his servants to collect the goods. And in verse 34, we find what happens. The tenants beat the servants. They stone some, and even a few are killed. So the the landowner then sends more of his servants, and the same thing happens. And so he thinks, okay, here's what I'll do. If they haven't respected my servants, at least they'll respect my son. And so he sends his son in order to collect what is rightfully his. In verse 37, however... The response from the tenants is not only violent, it's a coup d'etat. They, they seek to gain the inheritance by killing the son. Look at verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now if you know your Bible, you know this is like so 
foreshadowing what's going to happen. Because Jesus is going to come into the city of Jerusalem and they're going to literally throw him out of the vineyard and they're going to kill him, take him outside the gate and crucify him on the hill, the skull, Golgotha. Jesus is foreshadowing what's going to happen to him. But he now limits it to this particular parable and then he asks the religious rulers a penetrating question. Verse 41, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And so the religious rulers respond and listen to their arrogance and their judgmentalism and their confidence. They say this, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. It's like, how dare those awful people reject the son of the landowner? Can't you just hear him? How dare they? You just hear them in their grovelly, religiously shaking voice. Sounds like a former president, doesn't it? I don't know. That's, that's, that's not even by, by, I'm not doing it by purpose, but. Jesus nails him. Verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This passage is loaded with beautiful truth. Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22, which will become one of the most Christocentric passages in all of the New Testament. Peter will talk about it. It will be preached in Acts chapter 4. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. They, they saw the stone, no, that's no good. And this stone that men and women said, no, that's not good, this becomes the cornerstone. It's, of course, Christ, the very foundation for the entire building. The the stone that they reject becomes the the pivotal piece that holds the building together. We also see that religious rulers are now going to lose their spiritual power, and God is going to choose to bear fruit through another group. This is the church. This is a foreshadow of the coming church dynamic, where God's going to take them off of their seat of power, and when he, he's crucified, the, the temple curtain will be ripped in two. The whole system's going to change, and a new people will come on the scene. They're losing their power. And then Jesus says how you respond to this cornerstone, which he's essentially talking about himself, is e- extremely important. Notice what he says, that if you fall on the stone, you will be broken. And that's, by the way, so hopeful. Because the stone is there and there's only two kinds of people. Either those who have fallen on the stone or the one on whom the stone falls. And notice the difference. If you fall on the stone, you're broken. By the way, that brokenness is a brokenness of healing, a brokenness of repentance, a brokenness of faith, a brokenness that God can put you back together again. I've said this so many times, but I just say it over and over and over because there's new people here every Sunday. The biggest problem in your life is you. My biggest problem in life is me. And when I come to a point of brokenness, realizing I can't run my life, that's when faith and repentance can come. But the first step is realizing I have to be broken over who I am. Or this stone, this cornerstone will come and crush you. So in point of fact, Jesus is either your savior or he's judge. He's either or. And it all depends on your response to this cornerstone. Well, by now, the chief priests and Pharisees are like, you know, when he's telling these stories, he's kind of looking right at us. Seems like he's like talking right at us. You ever felt like that on a Sunday? You're like, man, Mark's looking like right at me. Yeah. Yeah. I am. So, 
Yeah, your, your wife called me this morning, sent me an email. We have this private back channel called, if you want your husband to get nailed, send me this email. So it's like, nailmyhusband at yourchurch.com. You send me this email, and then I take content, and I look right at people, and I tell you, I tell them exactly what, of course I don't do that. You know what that is? That's called the Holy Spirit, is what that is. And these scribes and Pharisees are starting to wake up to the fact that, oh my goodness, Jesus is talking about us. Verse 45, it's almost a funny verse. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. Yeah, newsflash, here's exactly who he's talking about. But of course, they did nothing. Why? Not because they didn't know he was talking about them, but because they feared the crowds. That's always the challenge with hypocrisy. If I'm honest that I've got need, then I've got to be transparent Hypocrites don't like to be transparent. That's why they stay in their hypocrisy. So the parable of the vineyard is a stern warning to the religious establishment, and it's a foreshadowing of what will come. If you fall on Jesus, you'll be broken and then healed. If you don't, you'll be crushed. Third parable, the wedding feast. Final parable involves a wedding feast and a problem with the guests. Verse 2 sets the stage. There's a particular king. He gives a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out invitations to his guests. However, in verse 3, his guests, the people in his kingdom, refused to come. It's crazy. His son's going to get married, so he's going to have a wedding feast, so he invites his loyal subjects. And they're like, nah, I've got to like, clean the horse barn. I got, I got, I'm busy. i got, I got stuff going. i got stuff. I can't come. And, and, and so, therefore, he assumes that, that, that he should understand the, kind of the nature of the party. He's like, look, we're having a barbecue. There's going to be line dancing. It's going to be awesome. He, he says, look, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's going to be an awesome shindig. Come, come, come. However, the people still refuse. In fact, some are dismissive. Some are violent. Verse 4, but they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the king then responds in two ways. First, verse 7, he responds in anger, and he punishes the people for their poor treatment of his servants, and thereby vis-a-vis himself. He sends soldiers and destroyed the murderers and burned their city. And then in verse 8, he does something interesting. He extends the invitation now to those people who were not invited in the first place. So he extends the invitation now not just to the city dwellers, but to the folks who are in the rural regions, who lived outside of the city. Thus, they're sent out into the roads, or if you grew up on a kind of a King James translation, the highways and byways. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So what happens is the servants are going out and they're like, hey, you got anything going Friday? Come to the king's um, great celebrations feast for his, his, his son. It's going to be awesome. All right, I'll come. I got nothing going on. So they, people are coming all over the place. They're traveling in from all over the countryside. And those servants went in the roads, gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. That's important. All kinds of people are coming. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, at this point, you could actually conclude the parable and have a particular lesson, but we're not done because the lesson is even deeper than just the rejection of the king and the extension of a request for other people to come. We find that as the king begins to survey his guests, he discovers that a man has come to the wedding without a wedding garment. Now, honestly, we don't know all of what's going on here, but it seems 
that this king, because he's invited all these people from rural areas, or maybe they were impoverished or something, they didn't have normal wedding garments, and so it seems that the king is wealthy enough that he gives garments to all those folks who've come. So they come, welcome, here's your robe, welcome, here's your robe, welcome, here's your robe. And, and so people are putting on these great wedding garments. And this man, for whatever reason, comes, he's like, no, I don't think so, it's not my color. Or what? He's just like, no, I don't want to wear that, and... He refuses to accept the king's provision for the party. And this is another rejection of the king, but in a different sort. You see, the reality is this man had no business being at the wedding anyways, but he certainly had no business being there and then refusing the king's provision. And therefore, when the king sees it, he pronounces judgment over him. Verse 13, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the king has now endured unjustified rejections from his servants, and now he definitively rejects an inappropriately attired wedding guest. He sends him out into a place often described in the scriptures as a place of judgment, and the rejection of this man brought banishment, judgment, and ultimate rejection. He refused to accept the king's provisions, and therefore it wasn't appropriate for him to be at the wedding. Now, the the section of Scripture then ends with a simple statement. It says this, Many are called, but few are chosen. The word called and the word chosen are used a bit differently here than like Paul uses them in Romans 8 or Ephesians 1. As is often the case, the same word can be used in a different context and have a little bit of a different nuance. And in here, in this particular text, this is a very, very significant warning. The warning is that Jesus is saying, look, I have made a general call. The call, Matthew 4, 17, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is going through the countryside saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but only a few have actually responded. So Jesus is saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people were hearing this and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it, but there were only a few that were really receiving it. That's, that's how the word chosen is, is, is used in the text. It's for those who've received this word. And it's another warning, and I've said this before in other passages, that not everyone who hears really believes. Hear me. Just because you know who Jesus is doesn't mean you're safe. Even the demons know who he is. You may know that he's the son of God. You may know that he died on the cross. But if you don't know him in a way that's intimate and personal, if you don't know him as your personal savior and that he saved you from your sin, that he saved you from who you are, from the darkness within your heart, you don't really know him. You just know about him. And not everyone who hears really believes. Not everyone who comes to the wedding is supposed to be there. Many are called, but not everyone makes it. And the hypocrisy embedded in this parable is that there are lots of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I know who he is. Oh, I was raised in a Christian home. I, I prayed the prayer when I was this age. And, and yet the reality is the fruit, the evidence, the reality of following the Lord Jesus Christ, those things are all in jeopardy. And the question is, so you say this, but do you really live like this? You see, this is the problem of the religiously hypocritical, where we say one thing and we live another. See why it's important for all of us just to kind of really think this through? 
So what are the lessons here? Let me give you four. The first is this. Listen, there are seeds of hypocrisy in all of us. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. There's not anything the least bit inspiring about being fake or a sham. No dad would say, I am so proud of my kids. You are, why? Oh man, they are such fakes. Oh wow. You know, people think they're really good, but they're not. Man, they play a good game and, and they're out there talking about Jesus, but reality in the back room, yeah, they're just terrible. They, they, they got this fake thing really good. Don't know where they got it from, but they got it good. No one, no one would live like that. But here's what happens, friends. Over time, your religious pursuits begin to become more about you and less about your love for God. What happens, you begin to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You see change in your life. You're so excited about it. And the problem is, as you begin to change, you see other people and you see how really they need to change like you've changed. And before you know it, the change that was birthed by Jesus now has become about you they just listen to me if they just hear what i have to say if they just and if you're not careful you'll develop categories of sins and people in your minds you'll think that when everyone grows up and is spiritual they'll look just like you you'll justify the presence of sin in one area of your life because of the absence of sin in other areas you'll, you'll treat jesus like a diet i've been so good today i deserve to cheat Or you'll start to think that in comparison to others, you're really not that bad. You could think, you know what? I don't sleep around anymore. And you'll feel proud about it. And you'll think that sleeping around is a worse sin than pride. You think, you know, I haven't sworn in like 15 hours. And, and then you'll feel like all puffed up about it. Like you're so great. You may even find yourself like the Pharisee in Luke 18, actually thanking God that you're not like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And by the way, you know what's going to happen in a church? The whole church can become like this. God, I thank you. We're not like those other churches, those mega church, coffee shop, topical preaching, willy-nilly. Before you know it, you could start elevating the whole thing. Oh, be careful, friends. The seeds of hypocrisy lie dormant in all of our hearts. Give them the water of spiritual success and the sunshine of human praise, and it will grow the weed of hypocrisy very quickly. There are seeds of hypocrisy in all of us. Secondly, beware when religion or Christianity becomes cultural, political, or normal. The problem with what was happening in Jerusalem was that religion had become too cultural. It had become too political, too normal. The priest had the power. The people loved it. There was this beautiful spiritual bubble. They didn't have to think anymore. They said exactly what the priest told them to do. And the fact of the matter is, is this is far too common even in our present day Christian experience. As a boy who grew up in a wonderful Christian home, went to a Christian School, went to a Christian college. Friends are Christians. And I don't want to diss on any of that or say that that's necessarily a bad thing in substance, but we got to be careful. 
Because we not only have Christian churches, we have Christian sports clubs, Christian bookstores, Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian clubs, Christian books, Christian friends, Christian, 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 Christian. And while individually these things may not be bad, when you put them all together, it can create a spiritual bubble that's not only unrealistic, it's actually a breeding ground for hypocrisy. Kevin DeYoung pastors a church in East Lansing, Michigan. He recently wrote a blog piece about the unique challenges of Christianity in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is the area that I grew up in, an area that I love, but yet I found his piece to be remarkably true, a place that we used to call, jokingly, the Christian Mecca. Here's what he says. He says, I love my hometown. I'm not one of those who cries to everyone who will listen about growing up in a bubble or how bad it was to have churches in every corner. It wasn't bad. It was mostly terrific. But in my experience, he writes, there is in Grand Rapids a strange combination of being tight on cultural categories while at the same time being loose on doctrinal categories. Whether it's Christian schools or things you don't do on Sunday or Republican politics or being really nice or being tall and Dutch or being very put together, there is a certain feel to Christianity in Grand Rapids. It's hard to break out of these categories and yet on the doctrinal side there's an unwillingness to get worked up about theological issues. The yard should look a certain way, but the historicity of Adam is flexible. Listen, that's not a Grand Rapids, Michigan problem. That is a Christian problem. And here's what I would say to you. When the culture becomes Christian, it usually means that the people in it aren't. I can show you that over and over and over and over. That just because the environment is so-called Christian doesn't always mean that the people in it really are. It was remarkable to me that the same kids that I grew up with who learned all of their catechism could then make a category and then do something completely awful on the weekend and have these two very different worlds. But that's not just my experience. That's all of our experiences. And we have to be really careful because we can start to think that I've done this and this and this and this and this and therefore my kids are protected. There's this Christian environment and everything's going to turn out. And while you may have protected them from one thing, you brought another thing in the back door. For instance, a mom that when I was an admissions counselor at a Christian college, said to me, now we're going to bring our daughter here, we're going to pay $18,000 a year. When she comes out, she's going to be spiritual, right? And I said to her, ma'am, we'll do our best. But just remember, you've had her for 18 years. We've got her for four. Third, obedience is the true test of what you believe. The ultimate test of hypocrisy is if your words match how you live. Listen, talk is cheap, not only on the basketball court, but also in the church. Anybody can talk up a good game. Anybody can say anything they want. The real test is not in what you say. Listen, the real test in do your values really work. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 5, 2 to 5. He says, for people, listen to this list, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's a terrible list. That's awful. 
These wicked, sinful people. And then he says in verse 5, all of this having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Oh, that is scary. You can have all of these things and then have an appearance of godliness but deny the very power of it because you've got all these backdoor things. And finally, well, church, we need to let Jesus make us regularly uncomfortable. Let me tell you that the only remedy for this terrible condition of hypocrisy is to spend time meditating on the life and ministry of Jesus. Friends, let Jesus make you uncomfortable. Let him push the envelope of your spirituality. Let him challenge your self-righteousness. Let, let, him, let him be the rock that you fall on so you won't be crushed. And maybe today you would just say, Lord Jesus, help me because I see these seeds of hypocrisy. They are in me. They are in my kids. I'm trying my hardest to develop a Christian home and a Christian environment for my kids. And all that's awesome. And keep doing that. And don't you ever quit on that. But also don't you ever forget that pride and self-sufficiency and a hypocritical perspective is equally as dangerous as going off the deep end. There are two ditches on either side of Christianity. Legalism and licentiousness. Jesus makes spiritual people uncomfortable and the day that you are comfortable with your religion, look out because hypocrisy has nailed even the most religious and it was the hypocrisy of the religious people that nailed the Son of God to the cross. Jesus aims to make religious people a bit uncomfortable. So Lord Jesus, we um, pray that you'd make us uncomfortable today. Help us in the midst of all the things that we're doing to try and help people to grow spiritually, that we not develop this wrong perspective uh, individually or corporately. Help us to know our own sin and to see the awfulness that's within our hearts and to know that it's so easy for us to think I've done so well I deserve to cheat God help us because without your constant wooing your constant bumping us along we will think that we're really doing well listen while Chuck just continues to play I want to pray over some of you today and we're going to give you a chance to respond I'm going to ask you to those of you who want to in a minute to stand, and here's who I want to stand. Maybe you're here today, and you're just like, you know what, Mark? There are seeds of this thing in my heart, and today I see it, and I just want to say to God, I hate it, and I don't want to give in, not by my own strength, but by the power of Christ. And today, I just want to say, Lord Jesus, there are seeds there. Help me. I don't want to become this religious person who talks ahead of where we really am. I want to be transparent. I want to be broken. I want to be humble. And I know that that's not who I naturally am. And today what I'd like to do is like just to pray for those of you who would say that that's where you're at today. And I'm going to ask you to do something a little difficult. And that would be just to stand where you are and to do that right now. And just to say, Lord, here I am. And just who cares who sees? I don't care anymore. I just want to say that my heart is a mess at times. And I just want to acknowledge that. And some of you saying it might not be the right thing. In fact, it might be the wrong thing because you'd stand up and you don't mean it. So sit down and don't get up. But some of you, this is the right move. You just say, God, would you help me? My heart has got these seeds and you pour enough water of success and sunshine and human praise and holy smokes. It's going to be a weedy heart.
So God, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters who stand today, who acknowledge along with me that there are seeds of hypocrisy that are there. And if we're not careful, they will grow and become the choking element of, of our souls. And for the sake of our children and for the sake of future generations and for the sake of your name and your glory in this very city and around the world, we say to you, God, we want to be a broken people. We want to fall on the stone and not be crushed by it. We want to know our own sin and see it clearly. And we want to say to you, Jesus, would you help us, make us uncomfortable as we see you in your word so we can know how to be like you. So far we have to go. We have so not arrived. And today we just stand in humble confession of the fact that we got a long ways to go, Jesus. And we want our kids and our spouse and our friends to know I am a sinner saved only by the grace of Christ. I am an imperfect man with a lot of mistakes and a lot of issues, but I know a Savior who could take care of them all. That is our singular confession, and we acknowledge that again on this Lord's Day. O risen Christ, fill us with your spirit, fill us with your word, so we could be your kind of people in your world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Listen, we'll have some of our counseling and prayer team up here. If you need to talk to someone today or have someone pray with you more in depth, they're here. Don't leave without being cared for, all right? God bless you, Couch Park. I love you. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.